Good evening. Welcome to the second lecture of uh, Rare Book School Week 4. Uh, just a quick reminder, uh, tomorrow night for Rare Book School students and for all of you here, too, uh, an invitation has been extended by Steve Clay of Granary Books to join him in an open house at Granary Books' new home. Uh, he's just he's moved recently from Minneapolis at 636 Broadway. That's Broadway at Houston Street. Uh, he will have an open house with uh, refreshments and uh, be eager to show you books uh, starting at 5.30 and going until 7.30. And that's uh, an invitation that's extended to all of you, RBS students or just uh, friends of the Book Arts Press. Also, I remind you that uh, Thursday will be the final uh, Rare Book School 89 lecture. That's Thomas Staley from the Humanities Research Center talking about um, uh, collecting and uh, rare book librarianship um, from his near turn-of-the-century view. That will be at 6.05 in room 506, right here. This is the final part of the final part and the climax of Terry Bellinger's four-part series, Ourselves Observed, uh, Education for Rare Books with Bells and Whistles. Terry Bellinger is ordinarily the director of Rare Book School. He's on sabbatical this year. And he is associate professor at the School of Library Service at Columbia University. Terry? Tonight is the realization of a long-felt desire to lecture in a t-shirt. <laughs> About ten years ago, I was involved in the planning of an all-day conference sponsored by the Metropolitan New York Chapter of the Association of College and Research Libraries, an organization of which I was founder and co-chair at the time, a fact which may help to explain why the conference, whose theme dealt with the nature of research librarianship, had the smart-ass title it did, which was, Where Did We Come From? Who Are We? What's to Become of Us? These three questions, where did we come from, who are we, and what's to become of us, have been the subject of my meditations on rare book librarianship in lectures delivered here over the past month. In my first lecture, I dwelt at some length with where we came from, and in my second and third, presented various aspects of who we are. This evening, I propose to conclude with some thoughts on what's to become of us. In 1966, Fredson Bauer suggested that one of the reasons for the poor quality of so many rare book librarians in this country was the small number of readers typically attracted to rare book rooms with a lowering of their funding priorities as a result. The cathedral hush of the traditional rare book room, Bauer suggested, may tempt the more worldly-minded administrator to deposit there as custodian some outworn cataloger or some shell-shocked delivery desk attendant 
as a reward for faithful service, where the world will pass her by peacefully and no extraordinary demands will interfere with her latter years. Bowers bemoaned rare book personnel's typical lack of training in descriptive and textual bibliography and a consequent inability to assist scholars by mail or even in one's own reading room. Modern librarians, even modern rare book librarians, tend traditionally to be trained only as managers, concluded Bowers, and the results of that tradition are apparent in the failure of rare book libraries to rouse themselves from their 16th, 17th, and 18th century somnolence and to adjust to the demands of modern scholars working bibliographically and thence textually or historically, especially with the machine-printed books of the 19th and 20th centuries. Bowers did note the presence of the then ongoing program for the training of rare book librarians at the Lilly Library at Indiana University. Remember, he was writing in 1966. But he worried that the Lilly program emphasized the managerial aspects of rare books over their bibliographical aspects. Under such circumstances, concluded Bowers, it may perhaps be churlish to wonder how thorough or deep grounded was the instruction that was mentioned in making competent descriptive bibliographers out of the students, since the knowledge necessary to analyze a book, that is, a grounding in analytical bibliography, which must precede the description, is rather more than I can teach in an intensive semester with highly selected PhD students. As I've pointed out in my earlier lectures, the founding of the master's level rare book program here at Columbia was in some respects an answer to Bowers's call for the bibliographical education of rare book librarians. To be sure, Columbia's library school has always had a rare book tradition. George Watson Cole, Henry Huntington's librarian, was a member of the class of 1888. Somewhat more recently, one need only mention the names of Marion Schild, Herbert Cahoon, Ruth Mortimer, Jean Peters, or Stephen Young to demonstrate a long-standing tradition here of producing distinguished rare book personnel, to say nothing of faculty members, to mention only deceased ones, such as Roly Bowman, Bertha Frick, Gerhard and Catherine Gerlach, Alan Hazen, Philip Hofer, Carl Koop, Harry Leidenberg, Frederick Melcher, John Clyde Oswald, Georg Salter, Frederick Ward, Frank Weitenkampf, and Donald Wing. My own part of this story begins in 1970-71, when I was invited at three weeks' notice to take over a course at SLS in the literature of the humanities for Alan Hazen, who had just had a heart attack. I had recently completed my doctorate in 18th century English literature at Columbia, working with professors James Clifford, John Biddendorf, and Hazen on the London book trade and the development of copyright. And I was now teaching part-time as a lecturer in the English department in what Mary Dobby used to call the lower end of the vineyard, teaching advanced prose composition, which is, of course, to say remedial prose composition. <laughs> Richard Darling, the new dean of the School of Library Service, then invited me to take up a two-thirds full-time lecturership in the school in the 1971-72 academic year in order to take over Professor Hazen's descriptive bibliography course and to continue on with the literature of the humanities. And in the spring of 1972, 
I was offered a full-time assistant professorship at the school with a brief to develop a program for the training of rare book librarians. A review of the literature of education for rare book librarianship suggested to me at that time that the common thread of rare book librarianship was its custodial aspect. Rare book librarians are responsible for physical objects and not simply for intellectual constructs or manifestations. Most of the physical objects in rare book departments, though admittedly by no means all of them, consist of some form of ink printed onto some form of paper and then enclosed in some sort of protective binding. I realize that rare book librarians are also united by their administrative duties within the larger institution in which they work, by their need to understand the principles of cataloging, by the urgent preservation and conservation demands of the objects in their care, and by their obligation to make their holdings known. But I had myself never worked in a rare book library, except as a reader, nor did I have a library degree. It seemed a prudent course to concentrate my own teaching on descriptive matters having to do with the physical book, in particular, format and collation, the vocabulary of rare books, type, paper, binding, and book illustration. This meant that I had something to learn, type, paper, binding, and book illustration not being subjects which loomed particularly large in my own program of graduate studies in the Columbia English Department. Things you can pick up and hold in your hand. The phrase is Harry Carter's talking about type, but it is one that is constantly on my mind as I teach. Students need to handle objects though it is not always easy to arrange for this in our field where so many of the objects we deal with are frail and damageable and very expensive. My own principal solution to the problem of tangible access has been to develop a collection of dogs. That is, rejects and failures from other collections, but useful for teaching purposes. Water damage bindings, incomplete texts, wrong editions, soiled and stained prints, unpopular subjects. Woodcuts of medieval German cities and engravings of French roses and etchings of the scenes of war and lithographs of parrots and maps of utopia are, or can be, very expensive. Woodcuts of watercress and etchings of machine parts and engravings of Bible stories and lithographs of Polish military figures and wood engravings of rodents and road maps of the north of England to take actual examples from the Book Arts Press illustration files are much cheaper and easier to acquire. The teaching of book illustration processes became much easier for us all beginning in 1986 with the publication of Bamber Gascoigne's excellent book How to Identify Prints, published by Thames and Hudson. For his book, Gascoigne worked out a taxonomy for all illustration processes, both mechanical and photographic one which we have since followed in setting up our own files of prints. Thus, our students can sit in the Book Arts Press with a copy of Gascoigne on one side, the press room owns four copies of the book, and files of miscellaneous individual illustrations on the other, arranged file by file in Gascoigne order, and work their way through Gascoigne, alternating between reading his descriptions and looking at the illustrations he provides and examining actual examples of similar prints owned by the Book Arts Press, in some case, even examining actual examples of prints reproduced in Gascoigne. I have laid out an example of how this system works in room 510, so that those of you who are interested 
can go see how the system works after this lecture. The system of each student, his or her own copy of Bamberg-Gascoigne, plus files of individual prints, works well for self-instruction, but it does not work at all in the classroom, where you have a dozen students or more. For classroom instruction, we have developed what are known as the illustration packets, sets of prints coming from a single or very similar source, nine prints from the same book, for example. Nine copies is the magic number here. That number allows for eight copies for eight students, or eight pairs of students, plus a ninth copy for the instructor. Each print in our illustration packets is enclosed in a polyester folder to keep it from self-destructing during use or after use when it is filed away. In many cases, probably in most cases, the polyester folders cost considerably more than the prints they protect. We have about 140 different illustration packets of various sizes, most of them containing well over or a minimum of nine prints, but all of them containing at least that number so that you always know you can make up nine teaching stations using them. The press room contains a basic library on the various illustration processes. And we also own a number of films and videotapes on book illustration, as well as a substantial 35-millimeter slide collection showing important examples of book illustration and printmaking. But our premise is that nothing substitutes for the object itself. I am convinced that you are much better off teaching illustration processes from bad prints than you are restricting yourself to 35 millimeter slides of good ones. In book illustration, as in typography, in binding, and everything else I teach or have taught, my aim has been to build up collections of materials owned by the school and housed in the press room or elsewhere on this floor, available for immediate use by students and faculty. The goal of all of this industry in producing teaching resources for use here summer and winter is to provide Freds and Bowers with better rare book librarians, ones who can collate books, who know the difference between an etching and a lithograph, who can tell a press figure from a press mark. In short, those who know that a diaper is not simply, as one of my students once suggested it was, a book binding for a very small book. but there's a lot to learn. I think that one of the chief problems with rare book librarianship today is that it is a research-oriented part of a service and technically-oriented profession, with the result that its practitioners are generally comfortable neither in the world of scholarship nor in the world of librarianship proper. The demands of both research and library technique are very powerful. Rare book librarians must understand, appreciate, and in general cope with the demands and implications of their institution's ever more complex machine-readable cataloging systems, for example. If they don't, they will discover that their department's ability to get any of their books cataloged is seriously threatened. Rare book librarians must either join the computer cataloging bandwagon or be run over by it. On the other hand, Rare book librarians must know something about the materials for which they are responsible, and know something, moreover, not only about the contents of their books, but also about the physical nature of the packages within which those contents are realized. Rare book school is one obvious manifestation and result of the desire of rare book librarians to learn more about the physical and intellectual nature of the materials for which they are or should be responsible. 
A firm understanding of all knowledge, both technical and intellectual, is not absolutely necessary to the rare book librarian, although it helps. The realization by rare book librarians that they are necessarily ignorant beyond remedy about the great bulk of their collections drives many of them to various sorts of abrogation of responsibility of the sort set out for us by Mr. Bowers. And there are other causes as well. Late last week, I received a note from a former student of mine who had come back to Columbia to attend a course offered during the first week of this year's rare book school. I came out of my course feeling a whole lot better about what I am doing and how I am doing it, she wrote. Isolation is her greatest problem. She has the uncertain distinction of being quite literally the only professional rare book librarian in her entire state. For professional company, she must either drive 12 hours to the east or 11 hours to the west to reach her nearest rare book neighbor. Another of this lonely rare book librarian's problems is the indifference of the library administration for which she works, as her letter hints. I have never forgotten a conversation I had with another former student who had begun his professional career in the reference department of the main library of a large Midwestern university, but who then successfully applied for a job in the rare book library of that institution after a couple of years at the reference desk. His colleagues in reference were outraged at his decision to leave the main library. Their institution was experiencing a job freeze, and when he went across to the rare book library, his position in reference could not, at least immediately, be filled. In a department of 16, about to be 15, professionals who provided professional reference service to an enormous clientele dominated by eager but frequently very ignorant undergraduate patients, patrons, students whose need were both immediate and desperate. The Rare Book Library at this institution was open from 9 to 5 and on Saturday mornings for a total of 45 hours per week. The reference room in the main library was open 116 hours a week. The Rare Book Library had an average of about 15 readers per day, a number smaller than the number of students who at any one time might typically be waiting for service at the reference desk in the main library. My former student's colleagues thought that his decision to transfer out of reference and over to the rare book library was a self-indulgent relinquishing of professional responsibilities, a retreat from working librarianship to a self-indulgent, indolent life surrounded by many old books and few or no readers. This attitude toward rare books and their servants is hardly restricted to the reference desk. In my lecture last week, I read an excerpt from a rare book application we received a couple of years ago. In part, it ran as follows. As supervisor in the rare book department of this institution, I have been responsible for the department's day-to-day -day operations, staffing the reading room, training and supervising clerical and student support staff, supervising photo reproduction and the department's preservation program, managing the exhibition program and preparing at least one exhibition per year, doing most of the local cataloging, assisting the librarians with reference work, and so forth. The job demands a basic and wide-ranging knowledge extending from papyri to modern social protest literature. It continues, I have tried to acquire this knowledge through on-the-job training, a private reading program, and previous enrollment in rare book school. 
my previous rare book school courses have been selected with an eye toward exploring my interest in the book as physical object. I found, for example, the two rare book school courses on bookbinding to be particularly interesting, especially for their emphases on bookbinding structures as opposed to decoration. It was a revelation to me to see how careful analysis of often very subtle physical evidence combined with a thorough understanding of the bookbinder's craft could yield so much information about a volume, when and where it may have been bound, why a binder may have employed certain methods or decorative elements, whether the binding was original or in an original state, and the implications these findings hold for how that volume may have been sold, distributed, and used. Since taking these courses, I have, on my own time, been examining my institution's holdings of medieval manuscripts and early printed books for bindings that are unusual in some way, are particularly good examples of various bindings or decorative styles, or that clearly exhibit specific kinds of evidence of binding techniques. I have already given several seminars on bookbinding history to local binders and conservators, and I am now working on an exhibition in which I hope to show how bindings can be analyzed and the evidence used to broaden scholarly investigation. The applicant then goes on to describe why she was applying for the particular rare book school course she was now applying for. And then she concludes. The course would also help prepare me for what promises to be two or three years of instability at my institution. We have been without a department head for nearly a year, and the retirement of our senior rare book librarian early next year will leave us without any librarian with a more than cursory knowledge of early manuscripts and printed books. The library administration has displayed a marked indifference towards our staffing problems and is reluctant even to fill these positions. Our arguments that we need to recruit staff with extensive knowledge of rare books in addition to academic librarianship are received with undisguised annoyance. By enhancing my skills in analyzing and interpreting the evidence provided by printed books, I hope that this course will help to prepare me for the additional reference duties I shall now have to assume. No less important from my point of view, now that our department may be entering a period of decline, would be the course's help in affirming my belief that a knowledge of rare books really does matter. And it only remains necessary to add that this is a person who was then in a non-professional position and who was attending rare book school at her own expense. Over the years, I have received letters and had conversations with a great many School of Library Service and rare book school students who have told stories similar to these. Tales of isolation, not simply from readers, but from their own colleagues and administrations, whose instincts are to draw a sharp line between working librarians and rare book librarians. Indeed, the hiring policies of some library administrations reflect their attitudes toward rare books. Fretz and Bowers was right. Too often, at least in the past, they have used openings in their rare book departments as opportunities to solve personnel problems in other divisions of their institutions. To transfer incompetent or otherwise offensive librarians out of working departments like reference or catalog or cataloging and put them into rare book departments where they are buried from public view and insulated from their working colleagues or where in any event they won't show Times, I think, are improving. First, because rare books and manuscripts have continued to rise sharply in price, a fact which has caused even the most indifferent and uninterested library managers to pay more attention to their rare book operations, 
property, after all, is property. Times are improving second because there are a great many more competent rare book librarians out there. Some of them right here. Busily defending their collections against the ignorance and indifference of their supervisors. And indeed, busily educating those supervisors out of that ignorance and indifference. And there are other reasons for optimism. Last week, Alice Schreier and Peter Van Wingen reported to me, as did Jack Parker and Dan Traster, that the students in their History of the Book and Introduction to Rare Book Librarianship classes were, once again, generally better than those in any of their previous year's classes. And Schreier Van Wingen have just completed their fourth year and Parker Traster their seventh year of Rare Book School teaching. There are a great many able persons interested in our related complex of fields, more than ever before. And there have been just under a thousand different students in rare book school since 1983, for example, not counting this year. Nevertheless, I predict that there is going to be a shortage of competent rare book librarians during the next decade, paralleling a more general shortage of academic and research librarians. In some respects, good times for teaching are bad times for libraries, in that when there is a shortage of teachers in higher education, fewer persons go into academic librarianship because they go into teaching instead. In the 70s, the profession of academic librarianship acquired a great many excellent persons who never would have got there or stayed there if there had been more teaching jobs. In the 1990s, there's going to be a shortage of teachers again, and that shortage will cause a shortage of academic librarians that in some respects will be worse than that of the 1960s. In the 60s, the profession still had the good women, competent women who went into librarianship then because that is one of the things that women did then. Competent women still go into librarianship today, thank goodness, but there are fewer of them because now they also go to law school and medical school and business school, and a good thing too for them but not so good for librarianship. What is true of academic librarianship as a whole is truer still for rare book librarianship, since rare book librarians typically have qualifications similar to those of their academic teaching colleagues and can therefore the more easily switch between the one profession and the other. What then is to become of us? with a smaller pool of persons from which to draw recruits into a profession which will have an ever-increasing need for competent personnel. The challenge of finding those competent persons is one that I take very personally and indeed have no choice but to do so given the dominant position of the Columbia Rare Book programs in the field. We have an enormous advantage here but also an enormous responsibility as the photographs of the 300-odd Rare Book School 1989 students festooning both sides of the fifth floor hallway of this building down the hall suggest. Such as education for Rare Book librarianship in this country is, both at the master's level and as regards continuing education for working professionals, this is, with one important exception, pretty much where it's at. The exception is, of course, the rare books and manuscripts section of the Association of College and Research Libraries, the division of the American Library Association, which most ALA-minded rare book librarians in this country call home. The rare book and manuscripts section, or RBMS, has enjoyed spectacular success over the past decade or so, 
with well-attended pre-conferences, effective committees, which are usefully attacking rare book problems ranging from the transfer of rare materials out of general stack collections to standards for manuscript cataloging, intelligent publications, including those from the RBMS Standards Committee, a useful and lively newsletter, and the only journal in the entire American Library Association called Rare Book and Manuscript Librarianship produced at section as opposed to division level. RBMS gives me hope, and its success pleases me in another way as well, in that the incoming chair of the section is that Rare Book School stalwart Daniel Traster, who will next year succeed the current chair, that Rare Book School stalwart Peter Van Wingen, who succeeded Bill Joyce of Princeton, who is in fact not an SLS graduate, but who does teach here, who succeeded that Rare Book School stalwart Alice Schreier. You get the idea. Both RBMS and the Rare Book programs here have a lot of work to do. They need to encourage good people into the profession, as do you. At home, many of you are surrounded by the best possible source of recruits for work in Rare Book librarianship, the full and part-time non-professionals working in your own Rare Book departments or in your own local antiquarian bookselling shops. Send the good ones along at least to talk to us about Rare Book librarianship and related concerns such as the antiquarian book trade as professions. We need them badly. These have been good years for the rare book programs of the School of Library Service. In our spacious and renovated quarters, strongly supported by the administration of the school and stimulated by the presence of the conservation, preservation, and archives programs. But we shouldn't fool ourselves. Rare book, rare book librarianship is a small part of a modest, unfashionable profession. With the close of the Graduate Library School at the University of Chicago, Columbia is the last of the surviving major library schools located in a private research university. Our programs cannot exist at their present level without an increasing level of national support. Rare Book School, for example, is very, is very successful. It is also very expensive. It barely covers its direct costs, and if it weren't for the support of the Friends of the Book Arts Press, it could not exist in its present form or at its present tuition levels at all. We already have a wonderful base of support, and you can see it. We have just published a Book Arts Press address book, giving home and work addresses and telephone numbers where we have them for most of the 933 persons who attended Rare Book School between 19... 83 and 1988, for whom we still have addresses, plus the 400-odd members of the Book Arts Press at the time the address book went to press in June, there are more now, plus the 200-odd survivors of my regular SLS descriptive bibliography class with whom I am still in touch, slightly over half the total number, plus 140 of the lecturers who have delivered a total of 280 Book Arts Press lectures so far in a series which began with Michael Turner's lecture on collecting printed ephemera on November 16, 1972. That was lecture number one. This is lecture number 281. These categories frequently overlap, but the address book contains just over, excuse me, just under 1,500 different names and represents useful information about a great many of the most active persons in our businesses. Indeed, I received a letter this morning from a friend of the Book Arts Press in Louisiana who had just received his copy of the address book. 
He writes, I scarcely know what to say. Here for the first time in one volume, I find the addresses and telephone numbers of the people I most need to contact in my daily work. The volume is nothing less than a compendium of those individuals most closely involved with the physical book in all its aspects. A stupendous achievement. There are a variety of bells and whistles for you to look at in various rooms up and down the fifth floor hall immediately following this lecture, including inspection copies of the Book Arts Press Address Book, which, by the way, is not for sale. They are reserved for distribution to the Friends of the Book Arts Press. If you are a friend, you will have just received your copy in the mail. If you are not a friend of the Book Arts Press, please consider becoming one. The basic membership is $30 a year, and there are forms ready for you to fill out in room 511 in the Book Arts Press Notion shop. You can pick up your Book Arts Press address book tonight. <laughs> Jim Sitter tells me that in IBM computer jargon, a bell is a mainframe peripheral that costs more than $50,000 whereas a whistle is a mainframe peripheral that costs less than $50,000. Contributions to the Book Arts Press of both bells and whistles are welcome. Also available for sale in room 511 is a wide variety of Book Arts Press publications, as well as Book Arts Press and Rare Book School t-shirts, aprons, mugs, and other delights. They laughed when I sat down at the piano. In the early 1970s, when the Book Arts Press was new, we had a physical space, room 512 Butler, now Dean Learmont's office, but no money. The remarkable group of students I was blessed with at the time, Irene Titchener and Peter Van Wingen were among them, designed, printed, and sold Christmas cards, hundreds and hundreds of dreary dozens and dozens of Christmas cards out of the door of the Book Arts press room until we had enough money to buy a sufficient quantity of monotype Caslon in sorts to begin proper typographic laboratories in my descriptive bibliography classes. The first Book Arts press Valentine's Day thought for 1975, 60% of all mammals are nocturnal, was similarly simply a money-making device. We sold them for 25 cents apiece, and they made money, too. Indeed, the money paid for a lecture by Michael Turner later that year on the Bodleian Library, Book Arts Press Lecture Number 23. So, also available in Room 511 are Rare Book School t-shirts, aprons, mugs, and other delights, as well as a variety of other Book Arts Press publications. They laughed when I sat down at the piano. Next year, tote bags. <laughs> and, if, and if you have further suggestions regarding additional notions... Please pass them along to Martin Antonetti, Carol Briggs, David Ferris, Robin Gagan, Melissa Mead, or Richard Noble. A moment ago, I said that I had a remarkable group of students here in the early 1970s who helped me establish the Book Arts Press. I had another remarkable group in the mid-70s, John Bidwell, Victor Cardell, Bruce McKittrick, Charles McNamara, Caroline Schimmel, Alice Schreier, and Sam Streit, for example, were all in the same class. And indeed, you can see pictures of them outside on the wall outside after this lecture. But clearly, the most remarkable group of present and former students I have ever collected is working here now on the staff of Rare Book School. They are responsible for mounting the exhibitions you will see all over the fifth floor after this lecture, each week putting them up and taking them down under conditions so complicated 
and in a time frame in a time frame so tight that you think the elves were doing it. They also put up with me, for which I am very grateful. As I hope you will be, and specifically for the food and potables at both corridors of this corridor, a complete rogues gallery of the students attending Rare Book School 1989 at the far end of the hall, an ad hoc exhibition of photographs of the various activities of the Book Arts Press and its friends on the wall of the corridor directly outside this classroom, and a brand new disquisition on Rare Book School and other lions in the corner opposite room 504. We will open the glass-fronted cupboards in this room and in rooms 507, 59, 510, and 511 so that you can see some of the chronologically arranged cloth book collections about which many of you will have read in recent issues of the Friends of the Book Arts Press newsletter. Laid out in room 502, the Book Arts Press Room, is a sampling of some of the most recent gifts, many of them from people in the audience, of books and other materials we have received from our friends, not least of which is a display of some of the more than 700 books from the Bodleian Library's Sandgard collection given to us through the good efforts of Michael Turner. Timothy Barrett and John Bidwell have been teaching their Rare Book School course in papermaking this week next door in room 505, buttressed by a display of some of the Book Arts press teaching material in that area. Please go and take a look at that room as well. There are other miscellaneous bells and whistles for you to take a look at within rooms 507 and 509, including our brand new type mold made for us by Stan Nelson on the model of a 16th century original in Antwerp. And as I said earlier, laid out in room 510 is a demonstration of how we teach the identification of prints, plus some examples from the illustration packets and the individual illustration files with explanations. Our ability to mount these ad hoc exhibitions grows in direct proportion to the Book Arts Press acquisition of teaching resources. Grow they have, and grow they do, and grow they will. A tangible reflection of our shared belief that a knowledge of rare books does in fact matter. Thank you so much, Terry. Fabulous. Well, the whole fifth floor is open, and you have until 10 o'clock, so better have at it.